Hello and welcome again to another episode of our program, Develop. I am so excited to continue with you today our exploration of the ministry of discipleship. And today I'd like to focus on the theology of discipleship. I want to say that theology should determine for us what we perceive about discipleship and how do we pursue the ministry of discipleship. And what I really want to say from the start is that when we talk about discipleship or the call to discipleship, we are literally calling people to Christianity. Discipleship and Christianity should be two words of the same concept. Let me elaborate. When you look through the New Testament, and you look at the biographies of Jesus written by his closest followers, you do not see ever that Jesus had two uh, levels of Christians. You don't see Jesus calling some to be Christians and others to be disciples. In fact, all Christians were called disciples. In fact, there was no one that was called Christians during the time of Jesus. Years after his death and resurrection and ascension, that was the term Christian was used as an insulting insulting uh, terminology, a derogatory uh, term to describe the followers of Jesus. But really, Jesus invited his people to one thing, and that is to follow him wholeheartedly and to become more like him. That is discipleship, and that is Christianity. So how come these days we find some people accept the invitation to be a Christian, but they do not accept the required invitation to become a disciple of Jesus? And how come some brands of Christianity present the idea of being a disciple as an optional extra? And the truth is this, friends, we have diversity of brands of Christianity. We have diversity of brands of Christianity. And whilst you're in it, you can actually never see it. It becomes that is what's predictable around here. It becomes that's what's expected around here. It becomes the culture in which you live as a follower of Jesus. But all brands of Christianity cannot equally be correct when they categorically differ in significant aspects. So allow me to say today that there have been some concepts about Christianity that are outright false. And I want to be honest with you from the start. This message may be conceived as controversial. I appreciate that. But the reality is, I am not the only voice that brings this message and brand of Christianity to the foreground. The truth is so many people around the world are passionately pursuing the brand of Christianity that Jesus died and purchased by the blood and launched on planet earth. I don't intend this to be controversial, but if you have been encultured in a different brand of Christianity, you're going to find yourself a little defensive. 
And I appreciate that all you need to do is to actually check, is this biblical? Rather, is this comfortable? The second thing, you might think I'm being critical of the brands of Christianity out there. And that is absolutely not true. I am not critical. I come with a heart of care. I come with a heart of care to what Jesus established on earth and what many others are absolutely advocating throughout the world. But I'm also standing strong on the traditions of the New Testament to say there are some teachings that are outright false and it's our God-given right and authority as the body of Christ to stand against that like uh, uh, Paul informed his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But also some of us may think this is, creates a, a very confronting dilemma for us as Christians as you hear what I'm about to explore. I hope this is not a confronting, but I hope it's a correcting of our path. Because the brand of Christianities, that the Christianity that we find ourselves in sometimes is more reflective of, our, of us being encultured in a particular way of being. And I recall that uh, precisely as growing up in a traditional church. You know, definitely the traditional church that I belonged to for 30 odd years uh, believed in Jesus as the Son of God who came to earth, who lived the sinless life, who died on a cross and rose again, ascended into heavens and will come one day to judge the living and the dead. But practically speaking, to be a Christian was not about a personal relationship with Christ. It was simply about adhering to rituals and rules, understanding of theological assertions and traditions and history of the church. And as long as you were baptized, partook of a, a communion, you confessed your sin to a clergy, and, uh, and you attended church as regularly as you could, that made you a Christian. It was about what you did that made you a Christian, not how you related and united to Christ. And maybe because of your Christian background, because of the way you've been in culture, you will say to me, Peter, how did you not know that there was something isn't quite right with what you were exposed to? And I would return the same question to you. How do you know that something may be not quite right in what's been handed down to you? And that brings us to the reality that we need to explore what we believe, what is, what's being given to us because the theology that we sometimes accept unintelligibly, we accept just because it's been handed down to us and we don't explore like Paul says to a group of people in Bere, he says to them that you took the word that I shared, but you were diligent enough to judge it and to discern based on the word of God whether it's true or not. And I believe uh, that the brand of Christianity that is prevalent in Western contemporary circles is a brand of Christianity that is so much worldly. It's been sprinkled with some verses enough to make it a Christian dream, but it's not a Christian dream in many cases. And the reality of this is that we see some unhelpful evidence of what's happening in our Christianity today. This book, 
uh, is discipleship and it records in the very beginning of the introduction of the book some of horrific statistics about Christians that they have uh, uh, explored through different research data. Uh, for example, from uh, the research that is documented by Barna in the future cast, the scandal of the evangelical conscience, the American church. And this is what they found about Christians in the Western world. They said that there is little difference between the believer, uh, the behavior of Christians and non-Christians. For example, the percentage of men viewing pornography is just about the same whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. There is violence, drugs, and alcohol abuse is the same prevalence between Christians and non-Christians. They say one in four Christians are living together outside of marriage. They say 60% to 80% of young people will leave the church in their 20s. They say one out of five born-again people who claim to be born-again Christians have no biblical worldview. Some of them don't even believe that Jesus led a sinless life. This is a depressing state of Christianity. And that is why I am fired up about the brand of Christianity that Jesus introduced to us. The brand of Christianity that is promoted today is a brand of Christianity that has at least three challenging theological underpinning. Number one, they promote a gospel that is not necessarily consistent with the scripture, particularly the, the New Testament. Uh, writings. Secondly, the view of grace is considered to be opposing to effort. And thirdly, the idea of growth is being communicated as an optional extra. So I will take the next uh, a few episodes to deal with each of those at a time. Today, I just simply want to deal with the false teaching on the gospel. What is the gospel of Christianity? What is the gospel? Is the gospel truly as it's being promoted in many Christian circles, unintentionally or intentionally, as a decision? The gospel is being reduced to an assertion and beliefs that require a decision once in a lifetime, after which we give you a Bible, we ask you to come back to church the following week. We ask you to read this book or this track and to volunteer in ministry activities. And God bless you. We're sure you're going to arrive to your eternal destination regardless of how you live. Because once saved, always saved, right? But the idea is, what is the gospel according to the New Testament? Because if the gospel is incorrect or if the gospel is partially communicated, or if the gospel is not what Jesus intended for us to receive, then the whole deck of cards should be broken. The reality is we're not asking for a new program of discipleship friends. We're asking of a review of the brand of Christianity that unfairly being promoted. Why? Unintentionally, I believe, good people with good intentionality wanted to reduce Christianity to a simple decision so they can count the numbers, so they can ensure that people make an immediate response, so that we can mass produce converts. 
It's not the way Jesus did it. And instead of Jesus saying, pray this prayer. And instead of Jesus saying, hey, would you receive me and you have, you know, wealth, health and, and whatever you want. You know what Jesus, his invitation, his gospel was, if you want to be my disciple. In other words, do you want to be a Christian? What do you do, Jesus? I tell you a prayer, my friend. This is Jesus's invitation. It says, deny yourself carry your cross daily and follow me there was no such thing as pray this prayer and friends you will be saved you live life you know whichever way you want and you will end up in heaven the truth needs to be based on the new testament writings and the inspiration of the word of god so today if you would allow me with a heart that is filled with compassion, with a heart that before Almighty God cares about the state of Christianity, about the state of Christians that unintentionally being deceived, I bring about compassion. I don't bring about passion. I am desperate to see Christianity reinstated to the brand. Even if I stand alone, I don't stand alone. There are so many God-honoring people throughout the world who are screaming their head off to say stop with the PR Christianity let's get Christianity right and today I just want to share with you the one thing about salvation that you need to know salvation or the gospel is not a decision it is a three-part process that is a complete whole pure and simple it's indivisible type of unity that the three parts Come together as one package you can't take away. Salvation in the New Testament is always referenced with three verbs. You check it out for yourself, my friends. The first one is this. It is indeed past tense. It says in, in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we have been saved. Praise the Lord. We have been saved. We have been saved. That's past tense. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. But then throughout the New Testament, you see that it's written about salvation, that we are being saved. We are being saved. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, is that we are being saved, those who are being saved. And then it speaks of the future. And you read about it in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. And you see that we will be saved, that our salvation is nearer today than from the day we believed. And it shows there is two types of salvation there. That salvation is from the presence of sin. First, salvation is from the penalty of sin. Then in the present continuous salvation is from the power of sin. And then finally when we meet Jesus, salvation is from the body or from the presence of sin in our lives. You cannot pick and choose your gospel. You cannot pick and choose your gospel. My friends, I'm afraid to say contemporary Christianity has taken one aspect of the gospel and that is of justification. That means you're saved from the past and has completely ignored the other aspects or particularly the sanctification aspect of our salvation, the present continuous so I want to take everybody to the one book that every single uh, 
you know, promoter of the idea that the gospel is just about justification. They say the book of Romans can be summarized that it's justification by faith. I dare to differ because if you look through the book of Romans, it's the gospel pure and simple. The gospel pure and simple. Read the book. Don't choose things based on your denomination. Don't choose things based on your tradition. Be honest and read the book for what it is. And the book of Romans It spends the first three chapters up until Romans chapter 3 verse 20 explaining that all of us, all of us are under the wrath of God, Jews or Gentiles. We have been unrighteous by our fallen nature that we inherited from Adam and we have no hope of saving ourselves. But then starting from chapter 3 verse 21 to chapter 5 verse 21, it speaks of the righteousness imputed, the justification that Jesus gives us because of His awesome sacrifice, substitutionary death on our behalf. But my friends, righteousness imparted is also from chapter 6 to chapter 8 and righteousness practiced is chapter 12 to chapter 15. But I just want to take one aspect of the book of Romans today and show you from Romans chapter 8 the three primary concepts of salvation that you and I must embrace if we want the biblical truth being esteemed and the gospel being true. And the first thing I want to share with you from Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 4. And here Paul says, therefore. Therefore is always a summary statement about what he communicated throughout the book so far. And in Romans chapter 8, after he spoke about the unrighteousness of every single person and the justification that comes by faith in Jesus, he repeats it here and he says, therefore, there is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to share share with you, condemnation is the opposite of justification. Condemnation is declaring someone guilty. Justification is declaring someone not guilty. And Paul goes on and explains why we are now justified because Because of Jesus. In Christ Jesus literally means in union with Christ Jesus. Because we're united to Christ Jesus, we are justified. He goes on and says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And here is the first part of justification. He says the law was powerless to do. What was the law powerless to do? The law was powerless to allow us to be obedient to God's instruction. The law tells us that we need to do that, but the law was powerless to make us do that, to help us to do that. So we continually disobeyed God. And when we continually disobeyed God, God said, well, these guys will never be able to have that righteousness that comes from doing what I expect of them. They're always falling short. So I'm going to send Jesus to take on their disobedience, to, to become a sin offering to pay 
for their sins. So what Jesus did is he paid for our debt. Jesus paid for our debt. The first thing about justification is that Jesus pays for our sin, for our debt, because he died when he didn't deserve to die. He died in a place of every sinner so that we do not have to die. So what happens is Jesus was God placed on Jesus our own sin. But it's better than that. It's not only our debt is being cancelled, because if our debt is cancelled, therefore we're neutral in our relationship with God. Almost we go back to what Adam was. And every time we make a mistake, well, we do need Jesus to come and die again. That would be ridiculous. But he did the second most amazing thing. And here it says, And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And it goes on, even in Romans chapter 5, I just want to, I haven't got that on the slide, but I want to read you from Romans chapter 5, a declaration of the fact that justification is also Jesus giving us His righteousness. He says, in Romans 5.18, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, which is Adam, was condemnation for men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, many will be made Righteous. The reality is justification is actually God imputing Adam's sin to our account. We didn't deserve that. But because of our union with Adam, we were considered sinners from the start. Then he takes our sin and he imputes it to Jesus' account. Jesus, it's unfair. Jesus didn't need to be considered a sinner, but he did receive that on our behalf. Then he placed Jesus' righteousness on our account. Justification is truly by faith without works. It's just the response to it is our repentance and trust in Jesus and dying with Him in baptism. That is unity because when we united to Jesus, His account becomes our account. If you united to the richest person in the world, you're not only re uh, relieved from your debt, you've actually got enough income, enough account to keep you going for the rest of your life. The second thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 is the idea of sanctification, being saved, not just saved in the past from the penalty of sin, but being saved from the power of sin. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Consider this, the law of sin and death is like the law of gravity. It's pulling us because of our sinful nature. It's pulling us to do the wrong thing. But guess what? The spirit that resides on the inside of us because we're united to Christ sets us free enables us to overcome sin. We collaborate with the Spirit of God so that sin has no dominion over us. Look at how Paul elaborates on it in the same chapter. It says, Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set 
on what the flesh desires. That those who are fleshly will act in a fleshly way. Those who are sinful, who allow the old nature to take control, will live that life. They are like that and therefore they live like that. But, thank God for the word but, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Those who have the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Guess what? The Spirit of God resides on the inside of us. He's called the Holy Spirit to make us holy people. The Holy Spirit resides so He can enable us not just to receive the Spirit of God and feel like we're going to go to heaven, but actually to live that holy life. It is part and parcel of life of God. You see, we, 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 He continues to say, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Please, for those people that say you don't have any obligation anymore, you've just been saved forever, you don't have to do anything, it's all good. It's, but we have an obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You have an obligation to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit, because Jesus died for you so you don't stay where you're at. So you do some religious activity and build your own self-centered empire. Jesus wants us to live according to the Spirit and by the Spirit, by His power, by His authority, by the power that resides on the inside of us, we can can put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's a pretty graphic vision of putting to death the stuff that do not align to the heart of our fathers. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are indeed the children of God. That's the sign that you've been saved and you became a child of God, that you are led by the Spirit of God. As I'll explain next week, that you are not saved by faith plus works, but you are absolutely saved by true faith, which works. Undoubtedly, true faith, living faith, has an expression of obedience to the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh and the fallen nature and allowing the Spirit to take control over us and enable us to live like Jesus in the world because sanctification is God imparting Jesus' righteousness to your daily living. It's not just imputed to your account, but actually live it out. It's now yours. You live it out. Sanctification is a lifelong process of transformation into the Christ-likeness through surrender to the Holy Spirit. And if you want, you can read Romans 7, 46, and it will help you understand that even though we've been freed from the law, we now need to live in the newness of life. The last one I want to share is about our future salvation. Paul again says, I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, talking about the future. And he goes on to say, not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. See, it's the hope for the future. It's salvation in the past. And it says, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently that's the future and again first uh, john chapter 3 and philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 it speaks that we will be like jesus when we are redeemed when we're glorified when we save from our fallen nature when god transforms our bodies and gives us a nature that is absolutely like jesus and here I want to say that Paul condenses all of that at the end of this chapter and says, For those God foreknew, in Romans 8, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's God's pre-planned desire. That's God's ultimate goal, that you be conformed to the image of His Son. That's sanctification. He said that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And knows he predestined, that's the plan for them to be like Jesus. He also called, he brought them into salvation. Those whom he called, he also justified once for all, no more penalty of sin. And those he justified, he also glorified and they will be absolutely glorified in heaven. Friends, when Jesus asked us to come to him, he didn't ask us to become converts or fans. He wanted us to become disciples. You look at it in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28, 29. It says, come to me and I'll give you rest. That's salvation. But then immediately after it says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's the imitation of Jesus. We are connected to him. We're united to him. We observe how he's living and we align our lifestyle to Jesus. So our prayer for you is that you would take His yoke upon you. Be united, be in sync with Jesus and be an imitator of the one who came and died and rose again so that we no longer live for ourselves but for Him who died and rose again. So why is this important? Why is this three-part process, the unified whole of the experience of salvation is important? Firstly, because it's biblically true. And you do not want to live on what is not biblically true, what is partially true. Partially true will give you partial outcome of salvation. But then it is a transformation that you are invited into, a partnership with Jesus that transforms who we are and how we live. It's bigger than just just saving us from our sins or taking away our sins so He can give us forgiveness. It's better than that. He wants His DNA to be manifested in us because your family, your workmates, your friends, your church, your community are desperate to see little Jesus in the world. And that's the gospel that brings about transformation. When we collaborate with the Holy Spirit, to surrender to Him to live like Jesus. And finally, it's the testimony that's missing in our Christianity. If you live like Jesus in the world, people are not going to argue with what you say because they see the credential of your life. They don't argue with assertions because they see the reality of its expressions. My friends, my brothers, my sisters, I beg you, check 
this scripture for yourself. I pray you would have seen that through the New Testament teaching, salvation and the gospel is not a decision. It's not a transaction. It's a transformation. And believe me, if only we would adopt that type of gospel, we wouldn't live like the world lives. And when people see our good deeds, that we live differently, they will glorify our Father in heaven. And that's our prayer for you. God bless you. I'll see you next time.